Welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast, a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance. We interview leading scholars from a diverse array of backgrounds and ideologies about the principles that underlie free speech in academia. Now here's the host of today's episode, Keith Whittington. Thank you for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast for the latest installment in our regular series of conversations hosted by the Academic Freedom Alliance on issues of campus free speech and academic freedom. I am Keith Whittington, the Wayne Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University and the chair of the Academic Committee of the Academic Freedom Alliance. The Academic Freedom Alliance is a group of professors from across the ideological spectrum organized to defend the principles of academic freedom in American universities and to assist individual professors whose rights to free speech are under threat. You can find out more about the organization and its mission by visiting our website at academicfreedom.org. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Jonathan Rausch. Jonathan Rausch is a senior fellow in the Government Studies Program at the Brookings Institution and contributing writer at The Atlantic. Um, He has received the National Magazine Award, the National Headliner Award, and the National Lesbian Gay Journalism Association Prize for Excellence in Opinion Writing, among other accolades. He is the author of several books. Uh, Most immediately relevant uh, for our conversation is his 1993 book from the University of Chicago Press, Kindly Inquisitors, The New Attacks on Free Speech, and his new book, just out from Brookings Institution, uh, The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth. Jonathan, welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast. I'm very happy to be with you. Thank you for having me, Keith. Oh, I really appreciate it. Um, Let me start uh, with your earlier book, um, Kindly Inquisitors. Um, Your new book builds on that one, but Kindly Inquisitors is a classic from the free speech battles um, of the 1990s. Um, You subtitled that one, uh, The New Attacks um, on Free Speech. What did you see as the new attacks then, and how were they new? There was an ideological movement to turn offendedness into a form of violence. Um, I called it the humanitarian threat because the notion here is words that wound, verbal violence, that using words in ways that hurt people's feelings or hurt them emotionally cause them a kind of distress, which is a kind of pain, and that that's an infliction of a kind of wound. And this, I pointed out, was a, a doctrine that was not just superficially, but deeply and inherently inimical to what I call liberal science, which is how we make knowledge in a free, peaceful, and knowledgeable community. And those are very familiar still uh, kinds of concerns. Do you see those as um, uh, more prominent now? Have they changed in significant ways? Or is that kind of uh, concern with the harm that words cause basically uh, still playing out in the same ways that you were worried about it playing out in the 1990s? Well, a lot of people have discovered kindly inquisitors in the last four or five years and said versions of, I can't believe this was written in 1993. It could have been written today or yesterday. So I kind of wish that weren't the case. You know, I kind of wish that book had made itself obsolete, but it hasn't. So some of the underlying arguments are the same. This notion that words that wound are a kind of violence. We now see that in the form of emotional safetyism, which is the idea that a university's job, for example, is to make people feel safe or at the New York Times that a conservative op-ed piece might make the employees there feel unsafe. And the notion of microaggressions is a kind of new wrinkle. It it takes it down to the next level down so that things we used to think of as just faux pas in ordinary life can now be interpreted as a form of violence. So it's gotten deeper into the pores. A difference, however, is also that in the early 90s, I thought we were looking at an ideological challenge from law professors, people like Richard Delgado, Marie Matsuda, and and others who were very theoretical. Today, we've seen this morph into more of a psychological or therapeutic doctrine, and it's, it's less evident, I think, than it used to be among theoreticians and more evident among people like the counseling people in universities, the student affairs kinds of kinds of people, student life people, and the students themselves, and many faculty who frequently seem to assert that they have a right to not feel emotionally threatened by ideas. And is your sense, I guess, about 
that uh, uh, evolution from more of a directly sort of theoretical and ideological project, um, uh, primarily being advanced by a set of critical race theorists um, in, in law schools um, into the kind of uh, mass movement that we're seeing now um, on university campuses in particular, but as you note, sort of uh, more, more widely. Um, has, it, has it shed its ideological starting point? Is it just the movement that happens to um, uh, link up in some ways with the earlier movement and uses some of the same language, but fundamentally it's driven by different factors. It's a different kind of movement. Um, or, is, or is it just an outgrowth, uh, but under theorized outgrowth of this earlier? Uh, you know, movement? I don't know, Keith, I would ask you that question. <laughs> I'd, actually, you'd be the first person I'd want to hear answer that question. My sense is that it's it's certainly been consumerized since the right. early 90s. You know, a lot of people now, the notion is, well, you know, we're paying a, a pretty penny to be at this university. And we're told in all the uh, recruiting materials that you're going to have a great experience here every day. And it's going to be fun and exciting. And no one told me I was going to have to encounter ideas that might shake me to my core or, or offend me or seem blasphemous. So it's kind of been consumerized, and I think it's been therapeutized. But I, I would, if you don't mind, I would like to know the answer, your answer to the question that you just asked. Is it a theoretical challenge, or is it more of, has it just kind of morphed into kind of a therapeutic mindset? Well, I think you're right that it certainly has morphed to some degree into a therapeutic mindset and does um, tap into um, a larger therapeutic culture in, in lots of ways. Um, I, I do worry that some people I think minimize too much the ideological features of some of the uh, sensorial temptations um, uh, that plague us more generally on college campuses, but also beyond college campuses. Those often do seem like movements, uh, especially with the activists who are involved um, that have a political agenda and they're using censorship as a tool to advance that uh, political agenda. But, um, but they have the advantage of being able to tap into sort of a kind of therapeutic culture that um, is very sensitive to these kinds of claims about um, harms and offensiveness and, and the ways in which uh, people might um, uh, be injured uh, by words. And, and um, so they can exploit that in order to advance uh, the, those larger aims. But um, it seems like potentially two sort of separate, but um, uh, confluent uh, kinds of events. That, yeah, um, yeah, that, that, that seems most. right. I guess I would add to that the the element that is either new or, or very old, depending how you look <laughs> on it, is goes beyond the notion that offending someone, hurting them right. emotionally is a form of violence. And it says that certain ideas in and of themselves are inherently violent. Right. And this is, we see a lot of this in, for example, certain forms of anti-racism, critical race theory, but we also saw it from Marxists and it goes way, way back. Now we're talking about, for example, the arguments against blasphemy, which mm -hmm. are age old, which is right. that just holding this belief. The very fact that it exists and that someone might encounter it is a fundamental threat to justice and the social order and man's place, proper place under the heavens. And so that is quite heavily theorized nowadays. Um, and it is also extremely ancient. This notion that an idea in and of itself needs to be expurcated. Is that a word? Extirpated? <laughs> yeah, right. You guys at Princeton <laughs> <laughs> needs to be stamped out. Right, right. Because just its existence is injustice, oppression, and violence. Yeah, so let me um, uh, ask you, I guess, to elaborate a little bit on that idea, um, uh, both the, the ideas is violence issue, but also the ways in which um, uh, uh, words and verbal behavior can cause um, harms. You talk about that um, uh, to some degree in the, in the new book, um, The Constitution of Knowledge, and, um, um, and, and are critical of ideas about like microaggressions um, and the like and the ways in which um, our sense of the harm that comes from uh, words um, have, have expanded over time. Um, to what degree do you uh, want to minimize the significance of the injuries people report that they feel from those uh, kinds of uses of words? So it, that is to say, do you want to deny that there are actually harms and injuries uh, that arise from 
microaggressions, problematic ideas, offensive words, et cetera? Um, or is your concern to say this is th that um, uh, we are overplaying the significance of the harms or using the wrong tools to address whatever harms arise uh, from them? How should we think about this um, connection between uh, uh, claimed harms and, and language? Can I say yes to all of the above? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it's, uh, it's a bunch of things there. Everything you said, plus a few others. Now, I'm going to use one of those much belabored speaking as a sentences. Speaking as an American homosexual born in 1960, I can tell you that bad ideas can have severe, painful, and destructive consequences. For example, homosexuality is a form of mental illness. People like me, not me fortunately, but were subjected to shock therapy. Uh, Alan Turing probably did more than any other one human being to win World War II, was subjected to, I mean, think about this, chemical right. castration, it was called, because of bad ideas. And gay kids like me grew up feeling miserable every day because of the stuff that we heard on the radio, the awful stuff that was said about us. So no one needs to convince me that bad words and bad ideas have bad consequences. But the solution to bad words and bad ideas is to solve the ignorance and fear that underlie them. Hate doesn't come usually from people getting up in the morning and saying, who can I hate on today? It's fun. Maybe some skinheads do. Mostly it comes from fear and ignorance. You know, if you think that homosexuals are going to um, subvert the government recruit your children and bring God's wrath down on the country, you will hate homosexuals too. We dealt with that by confronting a lot of heterosexuals with a lot of arguments that they didn't want to hear. And it seemed deeply offensive and ridiculous at the time, but they happened to be true. So we got our freedom that way. Um, we as minorities should be the last people to rush to the notion that if you hurt someone with words, you're violating their rights because there's no way to develop minority rights if minorities and everyone else are not in a position to expose people to these ideas. So yeah, is it painful to confront ideas that are unexpected, unwelcome, obnoxious, blasphemous, heretical, offensive, downright wrong? Yeah, that's, that's not fun. Uh, on the other hand, we call it education. It happens every day on a college campus. Uh, I think that a lot of the times the actual harms of encountering these ideas are greatly exaggerated. The benefits are greatly underreported. I learn much more on a daily basis from the stuff I don't like to hear than from the stuff I do like to hear. So in many cases, we should take a welcoming attitude of ideas that are offensive or, or painful. And we should be thinking, what can I learn from this rather than how can I get rid of this? So, yeah, I think the, the harms are overstated and the benefits are understated. And also, if you want to live in a society where you've got knowledge, well, a no offense society is a no learning society because we learn by the rubbing up of ideas and arguments against each other. That was a yes to everything you said. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, that's and, and good and, and, and useful. So. So I was going to put this off, but let me just ask now, I guess it's, it follows quite naturally from, from what you just said, which is to what degree it is that kind of um, uh, commitment, as you characterize it, to education um, uh, require um, uh, certain assumptions about the empirics of how this works? Uh, that is to say, do you have to, uh, do you have to be optimistic um, that uh, we will actually get progress um, out of that scraping together of ideas um, that, that engaging in those debates, um, uh, inviting uh, those wounds um, uh, will, in the end of the day, uh, result in a better situation. Um, and is, is that really fundamentally just an empirical bet um, uh, that it's true, um, uh, such that why you may be an optimist about the value of education, the value of debate um, in that sense, somebody else may be much more pessimistic about whether or not that's really going to work out. Um, and as a consequence, take a different approach to thinking, well, how much are you really going to lose uh, than if you shut down all the bad ideas uh, through the use of force rather than uh, trying to uh, persuade a bunch of people? Well, I love short, crisp answers, but the but you're about to hear is that intentionally or not, you have raised the subject of my new book. Absolutely. The Constitution of Knowledge. 
And the core idea of that, or one of the core ideas, one of the three big ideas in that book, you can ask me later about the other two, if this suspense is killing you, that idea is the marketplace of ideas is not enough. You need a constitution of knowledge. Whenever I talk about free speech in the marketplace of ideas, some undergraduate will invariably ask, well, how do we know that in the marketplace of ideas, the best ideas will surface? Maybe the worst ideas will surface, maybe random ideas, whatever people like. And they're absolutely right. This is a profound question. Civil libertarians have kind of poo-pooed it and said, well, empirically good ideas do went out. Thus, you know, I have the COVID vaccine in my arm right now, but that's not a good enough answer. <clears throat> the right answer is that if you want to turn raw information and raw conversation into knowledge, you need a lot of structure. You need a lot of settings. It's like converting voting into a government. You need a constitution that develops institutions and establishes professionals and protocols, things like courts, checks and balances, even morals, what the founders called Republican virtues. You need a lot of stuff. And in the constitution of knowledge, you need a lot of rules, like how to do research, the institutions that promulgate those standards, teach those standards, like Princeton University. You need a whole establishment of what I call the reality-based community that adhere to those rules and train people in those rules. The big four of the reality-based community are, number one, the world of academia, science, research. Number two, the world of journalism, of which I'm part. Number three, the world of law, also fact-seeking and truth-based, as Donald Trump and his MAGA movement found out when they went to court with 60 frivolous lawsuits about the election. And number four, the government. Very important that government policy be based on real reality and not fake reality. So you need all of that stuff. So the answer to the question you ask is, we know from 350 years of history that if you get those settings and systems right, so that you have structured conversations that force people to make arguments in certain ways and then expose those arguments to other people and institutions. And if you have public mores, which say it's only that which emerges from that whole networked structure of comparing, contrasting, and choosing ideas, it's only what comes out of that that becomes knowledge. If you do all of that, it's incredible. We learn more any given morning than in the first 200,000 years of human history because of the reality-based community and the constitution of knowledge. It is a fantastic invention, but you have to get lots of stuff right. Freedom is not enough. Yeah, one thing that the constitution of knowledge really emphasizes, and you say emphasizes relative to what you said in The Kind Inquisitors, is that emphasis on institutions, the need for um, particular uh, processes, uh, um, uh, uh, practices, um, as well as sort of concrete organizations and the like that can help uh, foster the kind of environment in which you're going to advance truth um, uh, and, and help foster these kinds of debates that are actually productive uh, toward advancing knowledge as opposed to just being um, having sort of free play in, in the world. Yeah, I tell people it's two things, not just one. It's yes, it's freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. but just as important, it's discipline of fact. And you at Princeton, you teach both. And you at the Academic Freedom Alliance, you defend both. Right. So, uh, so I like this phrase uh, that you use in the book about reality-based uh, professionals. Um, and, and, and I appreciate that you count professors among them. Um, but, um, uh, but as you know, there's lots of people in the country who would question that label, probably including some of the members of my own family, uh, as to whether or not uh, professors are really uh, reality-based professionals. And, and uh, Donald Trump and others uh, would uh, say the same about journalism and others, about whether or not they are really uh, reality-based um, uh, professionals. Um, how do we know uh, who counts uh, or what communities of, um, of professions uh, count as uh, reality-based uh, prof uh, professionals in that sense? And, and why in particular do you think, for example, academics make the cut? Well, if you spend your life dedicated towards seeking knowledge and adhering to or trying to adhere to the principles of the constitution of knowledge, which I spell out in the book, we can get into the weeds if you like, it's kind of fun. But if you're doing those things, 
And especially if you're doing that for a living, you're definitely part of the reality-based community. And I would argue that even Keith Whittington, as really crude and primitive as his writing and thinking tends to be, even he makes the cut to our It's our a very listeners. low bar, apparently. So. <laughs> Keith is grinning. He knows I'm joshing him. But, uh, you know, say Keith Whittington wants to, um, wants to propound a new hypothesis and, and get it accepted as knowledge. Well, he could go out with a sandwich board on the street and announce that he's had a revelation from God. He could get online and announce his new conspiracy theory and see how many followers it gets. And then if it gets a lot of followers, he can say a lot of people are saying it, so it must be true. But he'll get fired from Princeton if he does those things, or at least he'll be looked askance on what he'll in fact have to do is first develop a hypothesis, then state it in contestable ways, exposing it to all kinds of surfaces that can be attacked. And then he's going to have to put it up for peer review. And then if he's lucky, it'll get published. And then if he's even luckier, it'll get parceled out and picked up by other nodes in the reality-based community. And some of them will be academic, but some might be journalists. Some might, in fact, be law and government. And they'll examine pieces of it, often quite critically in ways that will hurt his feelings. We don't care. That's part of his job too, to have his feelings hurt. And it could be years, literally years, before he knows how his hypothesis is fared. And then he has to live with the result because he might lose the argument. And then he has to say, well, I haven't changed my mind, but the system doesn't agree with me. And I accept that. That is a ton of discipline and work and professionalism. And then Keith Whittington's going to get up every morning and teach classes to try to teach other people to do all that same stuff. It took three centuries or more to develop all of those structures and skills. And if you're doing that every day, you're part of the reality-based community. Now, now that said, we argue about who's in and out, who's doing good science or bad science, who's the real journalist and you know who is, the, who is fake news. The system argues about itself and that's a strength, not a weakness. But in the main, I think we usually know who's in it. We seem to be experiencing a general crisis of confidence and expertise and, and a lot of these institutions that, that you want to characterize as, as uh, reality-based um, uh, professional um, institutions, whether it's journalism or academia um, or, or others. Um, uh, there are plenty of people in our uh, popular discourse and in our government um, these days who uh, cast aspersions at all those institutions and the kind of people um, who operate uh, within them. Um, how real do you think that kind of crisis of confidence and expertise um, is? And is, is it possible to get that confidence back um, uh, so that when we say, well, look, here is the knowledge that's being developed uh, in universities or out of good journalism, um, we can actually persuade people that they ought to believe that uh, rather than uh, immediately be skeptical and have doubts about it. I hope it's possible. There are a lot of headwinds. There, there are two things that have gone on. Well, there are more than two, but, but there are two things that are really important that have happened over the last 20 or 30 years. One has been a sustained, sophisticated, opportunistic, and very effective attack on the credibility of the reality-based community. This starts in the 1970s with postmodernism and deconstructionism and all that. I have some good things to say about those movements as theories, but as applied, they were basically saying it's all politics, you can't believe anyone. This is then picked up by conservatives, Rush Limbaugh, uh, talk radio, eventually cable TV. Uh, Rush Limbaugh used to rail against what he called the four corners of deceit, by which he meant, he said, academia, science, journalism, and government. That's the reality-based community. He's saying you can't trust them. They're all liars. This then gets wildly amplified by, of course, Donald Trump and the MAGA movement. Meanwhile, you get anti-vaxxers, conspiracy theorists, and all these people who find that they can weaponize social media and other digital tools. So you get a massive attack on the notion of a common or shared reality or shared rules to get to reality on the constitution of knowledge. And that includes a massive attack on universities and academia. So let's not pretend that all of this is the fault of professors at places like Princeton. But pivoting now, on the other hand, some things have gone wrong in academia as well. And one of those things is the decline of sufficient viewpoint diversity 
in a significant number of disciplines and a significant number of departments in universities so that there's no longer enough conservatives or libertarians or even centrists around to ask the hard questions and make sure that they're really doing science and not just ideology masking as science. And in some of these places, you've had the outright politicization of the curriculum and of the research. I'm not sure how much of that there is. It's hard to mention. I think actually lack of diversity is the bigger problem. The public has figured that out. Public confidence in universities has declined by about 20 points over the last five years. And, and by the standards of polling, that's falling off a cliff. Most poll results don't change that much. And that's largely from conservatives, both because of the attacks we've mentioned, but also because they increasingly perceive academia as an ideological racket. And in fact, two academics, uh, Barker and Marietta, have found that the conservatives who've lost faith in academia actually underestimate the amount by which liberals are overrepresented and conservatives are unrepresented. If they knew the actual numbers, they would probably even be more disenchanted. So academia has got a lot of work to do, I think, to clean up its act by placing viewpoint diversity on a par with the other forms of diversity, um, removing the obstacles to having real viewpoint diversity, making sure to be hospitable to people who are not on board with whatever is the reigning orthodoxy. Be curious what you think, Keith, but my sense at the moment is that they're not really doing that outside some wonderful efforts like yours and heterodox community and a handful of other places. No, I don't think there's much in the way of serious effort. And, and I think we're still uh, fighting an uphill battle to persuade people that that kind of uh, viewpoint diversity in academia actually matters, um, uh, that it has consequences. You just highlighted um, uh, potentially at least a set of um, practical ways in which it might matter in terms of outside constituencies, that if Republicans and conservatives uh, think that academia um, is a closed system of liberals, um, they're not going to be very trusting of what kind of information comes out um, of academia. Um, but there may be other kinds of concerns as well. But before I turn to sort of other kinds of concerns about whether what viewpoint diverse, lack of viewpoint diversity in academia uh, might mean for sort of the kind of knowledge creation that you want to emphasize, um, I guess I, I do want to push you a little bit, I guess, on, on how uh, much you think the reality of academia actually matters for uh, this kind of co confidence issue among conservatives, which is to say, um, as you say, uh, if the average member of the public um, underestimates the liberal dominance uh, of academia, um, it's, it's hard to actually imagine just how dominated uh, academia is um, at, at this point. And so I don't blame anyone for underestimating it. Um, but I wonder if it really would matter, right? So even if it was in fact true that academia was uh, composed of 50% conservative faculty, um, uh, for example, um, that it would actually make a difference uh, given the kind of uh, political incentives and uh, interest group and media infrastructure um, that has been built up to um, attack academia um, over the last uh, several years. It, it would say, is, is academia just a victim in this case? And there's nothing uh, it, that it can actually do um, to make its situation better or to what degree do you think um, uh, universities are actually actually bear some real responsibility uh, for well, where we well, are? Once again, I'd, I'd love to hear your answer to that, <laughs> but I'll give one and maybe see if you, you agree with it. There is a hardcore on the right, which is fundamentally anti-intellectual, fundamentally anti-factual. We're seeing it emerge and now be organized, focused, concentrated in the Republican Party under the MAGA movement. And it's, it's raising hell right now. And most of those people are not reachable by academic reforms. They're deeply invested in a story in which academia is, is a villain. But I don't think those are the people that academia needs to reach. They're not the swing voters. I think there are a lot of people who still value a college education and have a lot of esteem for academia and want to feel more confidence than they do. Um, and I think winning those people is significantly possible. Moreover, two other points. First, academia should be open to all points of view for the sake of good science, because it betrays itself as an institution if it becomes basically a sectarian religion in which you can really only say or research one kind of thing if you want to have a comfortable life. 
So that's a very important reason for this kind of reform. But a second is, this is not just about how the public perceives academia. It's also about what kind of experience do the students have as they come through and what kind of people do they emerge as? If they emerge as people who understand that the education they have was on the level, who understand that all ideas are open to debate and have to be rigorously tested, they will be better citizens. They will have more confidence in academia and they will make better choices, I think, for the country. So that indirect route, I think, you know, it, it, it may be the most important. I'll tell you, in my researching my book, I talked to a lot of students and professors and a lot of them are quoted in the book. The one that really shook me the most, I think, and really made me want to cry was a rising senior at a leading liberal arts college, a famous one, you've heard of it, who told me that she really regretted in college that she had not really been exposed to any conservative viewpoints. But she said she took some solace from the fact that she had at least been exposed to a variety of progressive viewpoints. And that just made me want to cry. That is not what education is supposed to be. And if that is what universities are doing, they are not preparing the citizenry that can keep our country reality-based and civil. Yeah, I think that's certainly part of the concern, right? I think we, we can easily underestimate uh, the loss to uh, students from uh, having a... Uh, too homogeneous uh, university system among among the faculty, um, or if the kind of diversity that we represent um, um, on university campuses um, is is truncated in ways that um, is detached from what American society looks like uh, more generally. So, so as that student suggested, right, they, they got all kinds of different versions of progressivism, and so as a consequence, there's a nice little body of diversity uh, there, and you're exposed to a range of of different views, including including conflicting, competing uh, views in which people are going to argue with one another and there are different ideas um, on, on the table and you see genuine critiques um, of those ideas. Um, but you've lost the entire set of, of ideas and arguments that are um, out in the world, but, but just are not really reflected on university campuses. And, and that can't be good for um, students ultimately. Um, and presumably it's not very good for academic discourse um, itself and how we investigate um, the kinds of questions and concerns that are of interest well, to us as well as researchers. Students don't like it. Uh, polls now show that about two thirds of American students are telling pollsters that they are reluctant to state their true political opinions for fear of some kind of social sanction you know, being called out online or investigated or disapproved of or not eaten lunch with. And this includes not just conservatives, but also progressives. Um, students say that they want more, not less, encounter with conservative viewpoints on campus. The people who are working so hard to chill and dominate campus discourse do not, I think, in most places, most of the time represent numerical majorities. I think they represent a core of organized activists who have figured out how to weaponize course evaluations and investigations and anti-harassment codes and social media to make life miserable for people that they, the activists, see as getting out of line. The problem with a distorted um, epistemic environment, one that's, that's dominated and chilled by an interest group or several interest groups, people hate to be there. That's a terrible environment for people to be in. First, because you're chilled, but second, because of false consensus. You really don't know what people around you think anymore. And that means you're not even sure what you think. Um, so this is, this is the kind of environment that does not work in totalitarian countries. It did not work for the Soviet Union. It did not work for Jonestown. It won't work for academia. Um, and one reason it won't work is as you alluded to, I, I think the students eventually are going to want better. I, as, a, as a political scientist, I particularly appreciate your discussion of how a small number of truly illiberal and tolerant activists um, there are on college campuses. There's not that many of them that are uh, committed to that. Um, um, but that you also point to Banker Olson is helping us understand how you can get a climate of illiberalism on a college campus, um, despite the fact that the number of illiberals on a college campus is actually relatively um, uh, small. And so, uh, so why is it that you think that um, a relatively small number 
number of activists can have uh, such an outsized influence um, on what the culture of a place like a university campus looks like. And presumably, I think you'd probably say similar things about the New York Times staff room and, and other kinds of environments that we uh, would like to um, yeah, be smaller yeah, liberal I, and maybe or not. I say the same thing about rice subsidies. Why do we still have rice subsidies? Uh, they don't make any sense economically. It's because a very small, outspoken, and dedicated group makes your life miserable if you try to get rid of rice subsidies. Now, hey, now I grew up in a rice farming community, so that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that was that was bad talk. Uh, I take I it. Up. I take it all back. Rice subsidies <laughs> are a great patriotic virtue, but absolutely. cotton subsidies, <laughs> cotton subsidies, absolutely not. Um, so part of it is ideological. The Activists have succeeded in branding themselves as the people who are truly against racism and oppression. And they took liberals by surprise. By liberals, I mean liberals, people who believe in pluralism and toleration and the open society, including views that, that may be characterized by some activists as racist or sexist or homophobic, took them by surprise. So they're in a position of not wanting to be on the wrong side of, of racism. The second thing that, that went wrong was not ideological, it's organizational, and that's that only one side was organized. Only one side was going to protest, get online and start bombarding people, go to the dean demanding changes, picket the university, go and you know shout down the visiting lectures. The other side is kind of like, well, if they're students, you know, I'll graduate in two or three years, maybe I'm an engineering student, doesn't affect me. I don't wanna get involved with this stuff. And a lot of professors have been made to feel isolated and alone. Um, this is the, the consensus, false consensus we talked about earlier. They feel no one on campus agrees with me. It's hopeless. So the key there is to counter-organize, counter-mobilize, uh, begin organizing the forces on and off campus who believe in pluralism and open debate, create heat for college presidents that don't adopt the Chicago principles, create heat for college presidents that throw a professor under the bus when that protects professor is attacked over, you know, an email about Halloween costumes or something. And that's why I think the Academic Freedom Alliance is so important, not just by itself, but because it's one of a whole slew of groups that have emerged recently of finally liberals saying we've had enough. We've had enough of being bullied and cry bullied and pushed around. Um, we're pushing back. That's super important and potentially a game changer. Yeah, I think uh, I think the empirical evidence really does suggest that um, uh, <laughs> that prof the professoriate is overwhelmingly um, to the left and has become more so um, uh, over time, and so you don't get the kind of uh, uh, diverse uh, ideological political perspectives represented among the faculty uh, that, that some might hope for. Um, but um, uh, contrary to what you sometimes hear from uh, politicians and interest groups, um, there's also not a lot of evidence that uh, faculty are indoctrinating students in the classroom, that faculty are driving uh, the censorious um, attitude on college campuses. One thing you highlight um, uh, in the book um, is the extent to which uh, it's often students um, who are doing that. And so to the extent that there's a uh, enforced conformity on college campuses, it may not be coming so much from the faculty um, as it's coming from a relatively small set of student activists. Um, yeah, plus so some of the administrators in some cases, I think. So, yeah, so, um, uh, so, so yeah, so I have one question sort of about how much would you point the finger at, at students and, and administrators um, as, as being the source of, of these problems um, on college campuses? And um, um, uh, what do you think are sort of the tools and mechanisms by which they're, they're generating that? To what degrees, for example, is, is social media a crucial um, component of that from a student's perspective? So you highlight the extent to which students are nervous about saying things in, in classroom, they're nervous about saying things um, on campus um, in front of their uh, peers, uh, more so than they're nervous about saying things in front of uh, professors, um, which raises a question about, well, what are they so nervous about? <laughs> what is it they're, they're worried that's going Going to happen to them um, if, if they say something that's uh, unpopular. Um, uh, that I certainly said things that were unpopular uh, on my college campus when I was an undergraduate and some of my peers uh, didn't like some of those uh, things, but that was sort of natural and normal feature of a college campus. Lots of people were saying things I didn't like either um, on, on a college campus, but we seem to have shifted into um, a frame in which uh, students are just much less comfortable uh, uh, doing that. And so um, what's your sense about uh, why, why that's the case? 
Social media is some of it. I don't actually think it's it's the big factor. I think more is probably to do with the institutional environment. Does a student feel she will be backed up and supported if she goes off the reservation and says affirmative action hurts the people it's designed to help? And then a hundred people say I've been microaggressed or harassed, or this is a form of violence and this person is a bigot and I should not have to sit in a class with this person. What does the administration then do? And what has it said previously? Does the administration say, yes, you're right, we're going to investigate that student for three months, put them through hell, and even if we clear them, um, their name will be tarnished because there will be newspaper articles about what a bigot they were? Well, if that's the environment on campus, then I think it's pretty clear that a rational student would choose not to take that risk. If, on the other hand, you're at a university that has adopted the Chicago principles and lives by those principles, then something else happens. An example, a recent example that I like to use is the uh, University of Chicago, a professor in some online format said something that some students perceived as racist. You know, it was, a, I think, about affirmative action. The usual thing happened, which is several hundred people, mostly grad students, ganged up and said this person is a bigot and racist and needs to be investigated and demanded that the university investigate them. What then happened is that Robert Zimmer, the president of the university, issued a brief statement, which I'll paraphrase. The statement's much better than my paraphrase, but what he said was, we at the University of Chicago are committed to free speech. The professor was exercising that right, and there's nothing here to investigate. And Keith, you know what the result of that was. You know that the donors stopped giving, the alumni started protesting, the students took to the street and burned the campus down, and Robert Zimmer uh, is out of a job. Well, wait a minute, actually, right. What actually happened was nothing. The would-be cancelers, the activists, went away in search of softer targets. So, so much of this has to do with the climate on campus. And do students walk in the door, and for that matter, do faculty walk in the door, knowing that the values of the place are pluralistic, which is why I'm so glad that, for example, Purdue University is including a First Amendment module, a free speech module in its freshman orientation and telling them, you know, we're a state school. We can't regulate speech. There are better ways to handle it than censorship if you don't like it. Here's how. That's pretty wonderful. If you can change those institutional norms, which I don't actually think it takes a whole ton of human beings to do on any given campus, I think you can actually change the environment pretty darn quickly. I don't know. But what do you think? Am I Pollyanna? No, I don't think so. I mean, it's an interesting question as uh, to the degree to which this kind of uh, culture on campus and the norms that have sort of evolved around um, uh, stifling um, expression on campus um, is a kind of um, emperor's new clothes situation that if you just had enough people willing to stand up to it and expose it, uh, that you it pretty quickly collapsed. And you tell some stories in the book that sort of look like that. And so the Chicago story is one of them, sort of Zimmer uh, being willing to stand up um, uh, to the activists and say, we're not doing that here. Um, uh, You in the book uh, tell the story about um, uh, the the student protesters um, at Reed College um, who are objecting to one of their core um, humanities classes and are protesting in the classroom there and and Reed sort of tolerates it. faculty are all um, intimidated by this. And eventually other students stand up and say, wait a second, I'm actually trying to get an education. Would you stop uh, yelling in my class and, and let me actually uh, get back to trying to learn something um, uh, here? And, and, and ultimately the activists wind up backing away and, and going someplace else um, in the face of that kind of pushback from students. And, and those are optimistic stories about the extent to which if you um, are willing to push back and expose um, uh, uh, these activists as, as relatively small and vocal minorities that you can make real progress. Um, Reed, I find a particularly optimistic example in that sense, because that's one that you wouldn't necessarily think, well, Reed's going to be uh, at the forefront of the uh, movement toward a greater free speech and intellectual diversity on a, on a college campus, whereas Chicago, on the other hand, you might think, well, Chicago is just unusual. Um, Zimmer can get away with it there. Um, in a way that maybe just isn't true at other universities. But it, it does raise questions whether the problem at other universities is just that other university presidents um, are not as committed, aren't as bold, aren't as willing to st- 
stand up um, uh, for these principles as, as people like uh, Zimmer are, um, or sometimes like my own uh, president of Princeton University, Chris Eisgruber um, is. Um, and if more presidents were willing to um, uh, articulate those principles and actually defend them uh, when push comes to shove, that, that uh, they could actually be successful um, in getting away with yeah, it, or would yeah. in fact they just get steamrolled <laughs> by, by the activists and, well, that's and that they're again, right why to be nervous. The, why I think the work you're doing and Princetonians for Free Speech, another new group that's based out of Princeton yeah. that may be another model for alumni groups that are campus focused is everyone needs some help of somebody else. It's very hard for one individual to stand up and push back. And the activists know that, which is why they isolate the individuals. That's why they're spoofing consensus, using chilling to make people feel there's, they're isolated and there's nothing they can do. And president of colleges are not immune to that. If everything they're hearing every day is look, we're getting tremendous pressure to respond to these people who say that this has become a racist campus. What are we doing about it? If that's what they're hearing, they'll respond. So it's got to be multiple levels and there has to be a constituency for it. And that's where the Academic Freedom Alliance comes in. It's it's may not be enough by itself, but but I've heard, heard it attributed to Robbie George, one of your founders. Yeah. <clears throat> You'll, you can tell me what he really said, but the way I heard it quoted was, you don't need 500 professors to change a campus culture. You need five. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Leadership matters. Visibility matters. Um, I think one thing that's been very beneficial um, at Princeton during the time I've been here um, is the fact that Robbie George is, is a highly visible conservative who takes ideas very seriously, is willing to engage um, seriously with um, critics and people who have different ideas. Um, and that's a very useful role model for how a university campus ought to work, that they ought to be places um, in which you have a range of perspectives and voices willing to express themselves, that they're willing to engage each other um, in a serious way. And it, and it is, uh, informs the culture of the place um, the students look around and say, yeah, you know, it turns out that you can actually talk to a conservative. You can have reasonable disagreements with them. Uh, maybe you actually can learn something uh, from them, um, but they're not the devil with, with horns uh, necessarily. And they're not impossible to talk to and such that they uh, don't belong on a university campus. And having some people um, who are visibly willing to articulate these kinds of liberal principles and stand up for them um, and model them um, in their own behavior, I think can, can uh, make a difference in yeah, what a campus culture looks like. That's right. And what can make an equally large difference, maybe more so, is when progressives start joining the team. Absolutely. And I think that may be starting to happen too. One of the more interesting numbers that I've come across in my, my recent travels is about a third of Americans now believe that uh, are now reluctant to state their true political views for fear that they will lose their job or lose job opportunities. That's a higher proportion by a significant margin than at the height of the McCarthy era. Now, what's so interesting about that number is it does not vary by ideology. It's about a third for the entire spectrum from far left to far right. And what's happening seems to be that finally in the last three or four years, progressives have tumbled to the fact that they are targets of canceling um, and manipulation and censorship. And in fact, they are the main targets. Conservatives, Robbie George, you know, it's baked in for him. He's got a thick skin. He knows, you know, your Federalist Society people on campus, they expect to be ostracized. They have their club. Progressives don't, and that's why they are so vulnerable to these attacks from fellow progressives who turn on them and say, you're a racist. Well, that's devastating for them until they wise up and realize what's going on here is they're being manipulated by a group of activists who are not on the level. And that does finally seem to be starting to happen. Or again, am I Pollyanna? No, I think you're right. I mean, one thing I was very pleased about when we were forming the Academic Freedom Alliance is the extent to which um, it was quite easy to reach across uh, political divides um, um, and get people to join into a common coalition to uh, defend these kinds of principles of free speech. Um, precisely, as you say, because people um, across the range of ideological perspectives 
um, can all imagine themselves being victims to these assaults. They all see the threats um, to their own uh, free speech rights um, at play here. Um, and they understand what the common cause um, is. Uh, and fortunately are willing to set aside some differences um, in order to um, fight for some of these uh, really very fundamental values. And one thing the Constitution Knowledge does very well, I think is, is highlight um, uh, the concerns about um, in our contemporary culture and our contemporary institutions uh, from both the political left and the political right. Um, that that um, uh, the, the bad news is there are threats from everywhere, uh, but the good news is that those threats from everywhere actually have uh, woken up a pretty wide range of people to the reality that these are actually serious problems and we ought to do something about it. It becomes a little easier to, to convince people um, oh, well, this isn't just a problem at Oberlin College and doesn't really concern us and isn't really very serious. Um, and so it's much easier to see, as you say, in, in an average workplace, uh, people can see how this plays out and it doesn't just affect um, a few people in a few um, uh, isolated universities, but really can affect uh, people across American society uh, much more generally and across um, a range of political perspectives, um, uh, for example, on, on university campuses. Yeah, it's very important for people to understand that the kinds of coercive, socially coercive tactics that we've been talking about are neither left nor right. They're not against racism. They're not for racism or Republican or Democratic. They are information warfare tactics, um, tools, propaganda tools that are used to isolate and intimidate and divide and disorient target populations. And they are being used by people who may have good intentions, but who are using deeply illiberal means. And the key here is for progressives who are liberal minded. These are the many, many college professors who spent all that time in grad school because they wanna do good work. They wanna have new ideas. They wanna make a mark and do good science. There are lots and lots of those people who really resent being pushed around and manipulated. When they realize that you can be a true blue progressive and believe in racial justice and social justice and not subscribe to or knuckle under to coercive tactics. I think that's a game changer. Yeah, one of the really nice things about the book is both its um, uh, perspective about uh, the challenges that confront us across um, uh, these kind of political divisions, um, but also the common challenges that confront us across a a uh, wide range of institutions um, and areas within American society as a whole. These are not just university problems, as you highlight there, uh, problems for thinking about uh, reality-based professionals uh, more generally. And there's there are real commonalities between what's affecting uh, law yeah. and news and, and the academic world. Yeah, that's super important. The academic world is a special and rarefied case of a much larger problem, which is the deployment of powerful epistemic warfare tactics um, in American politics and culture. The, the basic ideas are not new. These are things like conspiracy bootstrapping and trolling, which is a form of attention hijacking and fire hose of falsehood and false consensus and social coercion. I mean, Tocqueville came to America in 1835 and gave a brilliant um, description of cancel culture, social coercion, though he didn't use those terms for it. He describes it as the greatest threat to American liberty. So the core ideas here, the core weapons that are being used go back a long time, Hitler, Lenin, Mao, Stalin, uh, Putin, all those people use them. Donald Trump is, I think, the greatest practitioner of them alive. Um, so it's, it's important to understand we're seeing these being used and weaponized in all kinds of ways. I, the one that worries me most is probably not one we have time to talk about, but I need to at least put in a sentence yeah. for it because I think it's a bigger problem than the ones we've been discussing, big although those are. And that's the problem of the use of Soviet Russian style mass disinformation tactics, uh, the adaptation and application of those in American political life by Donald Trump, the MAGA movement, conservative media and the Republican Party base. We have never faced a challenge like that, at least since the 1850s. Wholesale use of these powerful propaganda tools, which have zero regard for truth or reality and simply spew so many lies, exaggerations, conspiracy theories and half-truths at such a rate. What they're determined to do is not convince people of an alternative narrative, though they, they love it when they do, but also to disorient them, make them confused, 
make mainstream media, you know, you can't keep up with this, these lies, people become cynical, uh, fatalistic, divided. Eventually, uh, this can lead to ungovernability, even civil war. So I'm terribly worried about that. Yeah, and as you say, it's an old playbook, but um, uh, but nonetheless, it does seem to be a very new phenomenon. The extent, the at the very least, the extent to which it is true in American society um, uh, today. I, I I would I I certainly did not perceive it as the kind of problem, the kind of threat a few years ago that it does seem to be now. Of the extent to which people are just willing to engage in. Um, uh, a lot of bad faith um, argumentation, a lot of pumping out of, of <laughs> deceptive misinformation that is not even um, uh, thought to be true by those who are, who are advocating and arguing for it. Um, uh, but it serves to um, uh, undermine our ability to actually have uh, useful conversations and to, and to learn things and understand how uh, how the world works and the and the common issues are confronting us. But very very hard to figure out what to do about it very very effectively. Um, well, do uh, I have the book for you? <laughs> uh, the bad news is there's not three bullet points. Yeah, it's a, it's a society wide response in which all kinds of institutions do things and all kinds of individuals do things in their own different worlds. And that's everything from teaching students media literacy to redesigning social media platforms to having more sophisticated media coverage so that they're not amplifying disinformation in order to rebut it, um, to depolarization at the grassroots level, like the Braver Angels movement, of which I'm part to the Academic Freedom Alliance and the organization against these weapons of, of intimidation on campus. So it's all kinds of things yeah. at all kinds of levels. So that's the daunting news. The good news is that the constitution of knowledge has been under siege before. It has faced information epistemic transformations, disruptions before. It has come through because serious, dedicated people decided that there was a problem and went to work fixing it. And we are seeing some of those responses and you are part of one of them. Others are things like Facebook's oversight board, which I take very seriously. It's the right kind of thing, may not work as expected. Or Twitter is trying to make changes to try to get people to behave in more thoughtful ways. Um, so a lot of people, far more people are engaged with this problem than were even five years ago. Many of the best minds in the country are now working on it, whereas five years ago they were saying, well, what's the problem? It's just free speech. If we work on it, I think, I think we come out okay, but we have to do the work. Yeah, it'd be nice if there was a uh, clickbait headline about it's one small trick will save the republic, but unfortunately, it's a uh, it's more complicated. Right. Repeal repeal section two thirty. That'll do it. Right, that'll do or it. Whatever I mean, it is. What else? Yeah. What else do you need? The problem is solved. Um, yeah, but there's a lot people can that. do in their there's a lot people can do in their own worlds in their own environment. Yes, um, you know it can be as simple as think twice before you retweet something that you know is attractive but might be bullshit. Stand up for someone who's been canceled. Don't be silent. In that situation, you know, shame the shamers. Um, if you're leading an institution, stand up for these values and make sure to inculcate them. They're just all kinds of things. Or, you know, join the Academic Freedom Alliance. What the heck? I'll put in an ad for you because <laughs> it's not? really important. Why not? Um, but yeah, no, I should say, I mean, this is not just a question of, um, look, if we just did the right policy, if we just changed the judicial doctrine a little bit, if some elite decision maker would make the right decision, it would all be solved. That There's um, uh, both things you can do as an ordinary citizen, but really crucially, I think there are things ordinary citizens have to do um, in order to uh, make, this, make this work better. It's a diffuse problem um, and as a consequence also requires sort of diffuse um, uh, actions by um, average citizens in, in order to um, help counter some of these um, effects. Yeah, and step one, here I'll shamelessly plug my yes. own book. Did I mention the Constitution of Knowledge on sale at fine books bookstores everywhere. Absolutely. But seriously, step one is understanding that there is a constitution of knowledge. Yes. Just as the founders told us again and again, uh, the constitution is just words on paper. You need to understand it and defend it. It implies a whole set of values like lawfulness and 
forbearance, being willing to lose elections. And they said again and again, if the public does not understand and defend those virtues and display those virtues, as Adams said that, um, what did he say? That gallantry and ambition will pass through the constitution as a whale passes through a net. And the same is true of the constitution of knowledge. We must not assume the marketplace of ideas will sort it all out all by itself and we can go worry about something else. We need to understand you've got to get these settings right. You've got to understand that we have a system of governance for figuring out the difference between fact and non-fact. And you got to understand and defend that system. So that's why I wrote this book. Yeah. There's a lot more to explore, but I shouldn't keep you um, uh, longer, but I very much appreciate this conversation. Thank you for uh, joining us for it. It's been great. I enjoyed it. Um, Listeners should definitely check out the Constitution of Knowledge, uh, which avoids sensationalism in order to take a more nuanced and serious approach to thinking about current challenges of freedom of thought um, in the United States, now available from a fine bookstore uh, near you. Um, uh, it's, it's well worth reading. It really is uh, an excellent um, uh, and serious analysis of um, uh, what's going on in the country today, as well as what's going on in academia um, and worth, uh, worth thinking about. Um, also, please subscribe to the Academic Freedom Podcast through your favorite platform uh, so that you don't miss any episodes. Um, and rate us on iTunes and Stitcher, which will help others uh, find our conversations on campus free speech and academic freedom. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast. This has been a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance, or the AFA. We are a coalition of hundreds of faculty from a range of backgrounds and ideologies who are committed to defending the free speech rights of professors at colleges and universities. You can learn more about our organization at our website, academicfreedom.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us next time on the Academic Freedom Podcast.